Okay, kids, what I'm about to tell you, do not try this at home, okay? I know there's some young ones in the rooms, all right? Uh, okay, I am of the Nintendo generation, uh, and I'm not talking about like just video game generation. I'm talking about what we used to call regular Nintendo, all right? If you've heard of that, you know what I'm talking about because we called it that when Super Nintendo came out. And when Super Nintendo came out, I didn't get one of those, right? I just was stuck with regular Nintendo. Now, if you have any idea what I'm talking about, and these were simpler times, uh, you'll, you'll have shared experiences with me. Because when a game on the regular Nintendo stopped working, you just knew what to do uh, automatically somehow. No one had to tell you. You knew that you'd pop the little cartridge out, turn it around to the open side, blowing it, right? Right across. One time. One time. And then you're good to go. You put it back in, click it back in. What do you do if it doesn't come on? Well, that's when you open the little lid and you keep going, you know, like three times, you just keep up and down, pop it up and down, and then it should, should come on. And what's interesting about this is that, like I said, no one had to tell us how to do this. It just was understood. It was, it was innate, right? It, there's no YouTube. There was no online forums. It was just sort of like human understanding. We just knew what you had to do. Uh, but one day, as a kid, I decided that I was going to do something ultimately about this problem. Uh, I like, uh, though I, you identify with me if you're in my Nintendo generation, I chose to do something that identifies me with every generation of all time. I tried to fix it. I thought, if I can just take this Nintendo apart... I'll figure out what's wrong with it. Then I'll be able to put it back together and it will just work. So you probably know where this story's going. I took it apart. Uh, I discovered that it, though it was a simple machine, it was much, much more complicated than I ever had imagined uh, with circuitry and uh, computer chips and motherboards and things. I'm just making up words now because I still really don't understand what was going on inside there. And so I quickly decided, okay, it's time to put this thing back together. So I did until I was finished and I had leftover parts. <laughs> and I went, oh, well, now I don't really know what I'm going to do. And it turned out that that simple system, uh, I didn't totally understand it. And I could never enjoy fully that Nintendo again. Uh, what became obvious to me uh, as a child with a Nintendo, the Bible makes plain about the world in which we live. Uh, our world is broken, right? We understand that. And we're going to actually talk deeply about that in a future sermon. Uh, but first, the Bible teaches us that our world was designed and created by God. And that the more we uncover and discover, uh, uh, the farther along in this human experience that we go, and the more understanding we gain, that reality actually becomes clearer. Did you know that 70% of the, Earth's, of the earth itself is ocean, and that over 80% of our oceans are unmapped and never seen before by the human eye? Isn't that crazy? This world is much more intricate than we have even begun to comprehend. 
And it is created and designed by God. And the more we uncover, the more we discover, that reality becomes clearer. We cannot explain life with God, without God. But second, the Bible teaches that life the way God created it was happy. It was whole. It was full. It was good. And so we see in Genesis 1 that without God, life can't even be enjoyed. You might get some enjoyment out of the tinkering, like what I could continue to do with my Nintendo. I could keep going back to it and keep tinkering with it. I could exchange parts and I could decide I want to put this here and put that in there. And that gave me some enjoyment. You might get some enjoyment out of life by the tinkering with life. But without God, you'll never be able to enjoy life fully the way he designed it. And this profound reality is clearly stated in Genesis chapter 1. Now, this is a longer passage than normal that we typically study. And so what I want to ask you to do is not just simply look at the words on paper, not just simply look at the words on the screen. Don't zone out. But instead, this is something that I believe you are going to be able to engage your imagination in. So as I read, I want you to just picture in your mind's eye the kinds of things that we are reading happening as they happen. So in your Bible, page 1, Genesis chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 3 today. And I'll read this for us all the way through the end of chapter 1. It says, Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. There was an evening, and there was a morning, one day. Then God said, let there be an expanse between the waters, separating water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above the expanse. And it was so, as we now can hear the water from above the expanse. God called the expanse sky. Evening came and then morning, the second day. Then God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the gathering of the water he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth produce vegetation, seed bearing plants and fruit trees on the earth, bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And it was so. The earth produced vegetation, seed-bearing plants according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Evening came and morning the third day. Then God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night. They'll serve as signs for seasons and for days and years. There'll be lights in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth, and it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule over the day and the lesser light to rule over the night, as well as the stars. God placed them in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth, to rule the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. Evening came, and then morning, the fourth day. Then God said... Let the water swarm with living creatures. Let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. 
So God created the large sea creatures and every living creature that moves and swarms in the water according to their kinds. He also created every winged creature according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the waters of the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. Evening came, and then morning, the fifth day. Then God said, Let the earth produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that crawl in the wildlife of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. God made the wildlife of the earth according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that crawl on the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. God also said, Look, I've given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This will be food for you, for all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky, for every creature that crawls on the earth, everything having the breath of life in it. I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made. It was very good indeed. Evening came and then morning the sixth day. Six days we'll cover today of creation. And you might think if we were going to split the story of creation into two sermons, that you might choose the first three or four and then cover the second three or four. But I'm preaching this six days intentionally because this is the structure that the Bible gives us. And then things change a little bit on the seventh day. And so I'm just going to put that little teaser out there that the seventh day is unique. It's different. And it tells a bigger story. And I want you to come next week and hear that part of the story. But for day, today, we're going to study what these six days of creation mean. The first reality that I mentioned earlier that we have to face, that the Bible provides for, is that life can't be explained without God. Like a child opening a Nintendo, not having any idea what he's looking at. We cannot make sense of everything on this planet and beyond without God. The Israelites were told this story so that they could make sense of it. We cannot explain life without God, certainly not rightly or fully. But since the time Genesis was written, people have attempted to explain how the world and humanity came to exist. So you might be thinking today as you enter into this message on Genesis 1 that here we go, we're going to talk about evolution. Give me some tools. I want to get them. Okay? If that's you, let me just tell you. While modern people are inundated with theories of evolution, the Israelites were inundated with theories of pagan gods. So Genesis wasn't written as an argument against evolution, although it actually is a good one. Genesis was written as an argument against idolatry. 
Because that was what the Israelites faced. From the Egyptians who enslaved them to the nations surrounding them to the Babylonians who ultimately conquered them and, in, and exiled them, everyone had their own explanation for life based in their own cultures, pagan religion, or mythology. Stories of gods at war, of deities vexed by romantic interests, of reactions to plans gone wrong. But the God of the Bible, who is named here, the Hebrew word Elohim, which means supreme and sovereign and almighty, he is completely distinct from any pagan god or myth that the Israelites may have been hearing. So rather than creating out of conflict, rather than creating out of, out of romance or intrigue or self-preservation as the pagan myths suggested, God created by the power of his word. Genesis 1 repeats it 10 times. Did you hear it? And God said. God spoke and the world came to be. Even the days of creation stand in direct opposition to pagan gods that were worshipped by the Israel's neighbors uh, or ultimately their captors. Uh, plenty of pagan myths recount deities uh, think, doing things like separating light and dark. Um, but then Genesis goes further. Do you notice this in the first day when God separates the light and the dark? Not only does he separate them, but then he names them. He names these basic rhythms of creation first day and then night. Now, in ancient cultures, uh, the right to name implied the power to rule. So there were sky deities and crop deities and any other type of deity that you can imagine developed in these pagan godless stories to explain what people were seeing. But Genesis paints God, Elohim, as the true creator and ruler of all things. That not only did he speak them into existence, then he named the things he was creating as if to exert rulership over them. So Naming continues in days two and then in day three. And then we were introduced to a new form of power in the creation story in days four through six as God not only creates but establishes purpose for creation. Be fruitful. Multiply. You have a reason to exist because God said it. God spoke not only creation and humanity into existence, but he also spoke purpose over it. So, uh, in a world where each element of visible creation was attributed to a different pagan deity, Genesis taught a radical truth that only one God is responsible for every aspect of creation. That every element, visible, invisible, perceivable, imperceivable, comes from and depends on God, Israel's God, Elohim, the all-powerful, almighty, sovereign, and supreme God. This is the only way that we explain life. Now, pagan creation myths were competing for allegiance in the ancient world like the Italians and the New Yorkers compete for who created the first pizza. Okay, have you heard this argument? 
They're always trying to figure out who was first to the pizza game. Now, is it Italian-Americans? Is it Americans who are around Italians? Is it Italians in Italy? Who knows, right? And so while they are competing against, who made the, for, against each other, who made the first pizza, this is what's happening among pagan myths. They're all competing with one another. Who can tell the best story? Whose story was earlier? Whose story, etc.? And the Israelites are caught in the middle. And now God shows up and gives us this story of Genesis 1, and he basically saying, while these guys are arguing about pizza, let me tell you who made the dirt and who set the sun and established the rain, which would grow the wheat to make the crust and who grew the tomatoes uh, to create the sauce and the herbs to give it flavor and who made the cows and the pigs for your beef and sausage and pepperoni to go on the pizza. Israel, who do you believe is responsible we're having a different conversation than pagan deities. God is saying they can look at one thing and make up a story to explain it, but I'm the God over all things who spoke everything into creation. What is God? God is the creator and sustainer of everything and everyone. This is God's story. He's our explanation. So the most needed reason to read Genesis 1 it's not to avoid scientific error, although it can help with that. Instead, the most needed reason for us to read Genesis 1 is to avoid the same theological error the Israelites were tempted to make, idolatry. What do I mean? Well, for the most part, we don't make idols of the sky or the stars or plants or animals. I mean, you could make the argument against the modern horoscope that that is similar to a pagan, if not a, an extremely pagan practice. But for the most part, we don't tend to make deities of the things we see. What we do is make idols of ourselves. You see, the ancient cultures would look outside of themselves to other created things and make deities of them. What we tend to do is flip it. We don't look at what's outside of us. We look at what's inside of us as a created being and try to make a God out of myself. We make idols out of ourselves. We live as if the world revolves around us, as if we have divine right to determine the course of our lives in every way, right? We're always asking the question, what is my truth? This is our world today. Genesis stands in direct contrast to this. If Genesis 1 is true, I can't attribute my existence to myself. I can't explain life because of myself. I can't reach deep enough inside of myself to discover where I came from. I must have been created, right? Because along with the entire cosmos, I am a created being. I'm not the designer of my life. And because Genesis 1 is true, to the same extent that I cannot reach up and rearrange the stars, to the same extent that I can't stand on a beach and stop the ocean from making waves, I cannot create my own truth. I am a created being. We ought to respond to the po- with the posture of the psalmist. It wrote in Psalm 33, Verse 6 through 9, very poetically, that the heavens were made by the word of the Lord, and all the stars by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the water of the sea into a heap, he puts the depths into storehouses. 
Let the whole earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For He spoke, and it came into being. He commanded, and it came into existence. God is the only way that we can explain life. So why then should I be content to reject all the notions of culture that tell me that I can design my own life, that I can create my own truth? Why would I stand against that reality just by hearing a story that this God created as opposed to anything else? Well, Genesis doesn't just reveal that God created. It also reveals what kind of creator God he is. And this is compelling. Just like parts of a Nintendo in the hands of a child, life can't be explained without God. And also Genesis 1 reveals that life can't be enjoyed without God. Ultimately, life cannot be enjoyed without God, not rightly or fully. Our culture says life can only be enjoyed without God because they see God as someone who constrains, who limits, uh, and even maybe someone who is combative. And maybe, frankly, that may be so, but not because God's that way. Maybe it's because we're that way. But that's what people tend to say, that life can only be enjoyed without God. Like, that's where all the fun stuff happens. But the portrait Genesis 1 paints of the Creator is not as an oppressor, but a giver. I mean, did you notice the couple of times that it said God blessed them? God was for them. God was for their happiness and good and their prosperity and their production and multiplication and existence and sustenance. God was for them. He was giving us what we need in the form of food, in the form of uh, air to breathe. God was providing always and continues to do so. So, God's not an oppressor. God's a giver. We're going to talk about this more over next week and the next, but it's not God who treats humans inhumanely. It was the stories of pagan deities that always treated humans inhumanely and selfishly. In those myths and pagan stories, people and things were created to serve the gods at a whim, to be slave to the God. The God never returned the favor, much less initiated the good. But in the story of God, he initiates the good. It comes from who he is in his character that he provides, that he's a giver, not an oppressor. And he calls people into a relationship with him that is healthy and right and good and eternal. Quite the opposite of the stories the Israelites were hearing. Quite the opposite of the story we hear today. Genesis 1 reveals this truth. And so it's the pagan deities who were inhumane and selfish. Creator God who establishes true human dignity and value. Could it be that we don't really know what good is? Could it be that we have an idea of good, but it's not complete? Maybe we're like what C.S. Lewis famously said, that we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. What if it's that we don't really know what good is? 
Well, the structure even of Genesis chapter 1 teaches us that life, the way God designed it, is the ultimate good. Do you remember last week, if you were here, we studied the first three verses of Genesis chapter 1, and I taught you a little phrase from verse 2. Any kiddos remember that Hebrew phrase? It's a little challenge, okay? I know, I put you on the spot. The words are tohu, bohu. Tohu v'bohu. In verse 2, Genesis chapter 1, it means formless and empty. Formless and empty. Which are words that describe any form of life, human life or anything else, which is without God. Any life without God is formless and empty. But not only does it speak to our quality of life, Tohu and bohu, formless and empty, also become an introductory statement for the six days of creation. That as God creates, He makes forms. He forms the formless. He brings order to the chaos. Days one, two, and three of creation are God creating the forms. We see here in chapter one that God creates Uh, the expanse, right? The light in the dark. Uh, He creates the expanse between the waters, and then he creates the land and the sea. So God is creating the forms, which then he will fill days four through six. Plants, birds, animals, humans, You see how days one through three, he takes the formless and gives it form. And days four through six, he takes the empty and makes it full. This is who God is. And this is what God brings to any life with him. He brings order and form and fullness, completeness, wholeness, blessing, good. In fact, the word that ties all six days of creation together The only word used almost as much as God said is the word good. God saw it was good. Seven times in six days, God saw it was good. So the structure shows us the kind of God that is speaking creation into existence, forming the forms, filling the empty, Imagine a parent expecting a child, preparing the nursery, moving in a box and filling it with toys. Presumably for the child to enjoy, right? That they would, as they grew, be able to open that toy box and pull out things to enjoy. Well, God, so to speak, makes the box and fills it with good things. Because he is good, like a good father. Remember when we studied just a few weeks ago, Matthew chapter 7, the end of the Sermon on the Mount, that why would God give us evil gifts? He's a good father. When we ask, he gives us good things. That is not new to the New Testament. That started in Genesis chapter 1. Because God is good, and God created life to be enjoyed. If Genesis 1 were a song, each verse would start with the phrase, and God said, and then the chorus would be the lyric, 
God saw that it was good. With the giant finale, the big musical climax in verse 31, that God saw all that he had made, and it was very good indeed. Several weeks ago, I started a sermon by asking you to raise your hand if you could name something wrong with the world. It was like a full participation Sunday. I think everybody was like, yeah, right away, I totally can. Everywhere, hands shot up. You don't have to be standing on a moral high ground to recognize that the world as we experience it is not good. It's not good. Whether it's moral issues, crime, something as silly as internet trolls, or maybe it's something as serious as the greed and power behind geopolitics. Maybe it's civil wars or genocide. Maybe it's natural disasters. You don't have to look far to see that this world is not good. So the question becomes, how do we experience what God created life to be like? Because it's one thing to be able to say, I have faith that God created But it's a whole other question to go, how can I experience life the way God designed it to be? Well, the answer is we cannot put the Nintendo back together ourselves. (laughs) But ultimately, God has a plan to make a new one. Genesis 1 and 2 are like a mirror image in some way of the last two pages of the Bible, Revelation chapter 21 and 22. Several themes are repeated, several images are shared, and you can look at one and look at the other and see a lot of things lining up. I would challenge you to do this in your Bible study. Start on the first two pages and then read the last two pages and see what lines up. Because when God created, ultimately, yes, creation was broken by sin. Humanity chose to rebel, yet God continued to bless and pursue humanity, ultimately giving his own son, Jesus Christ, as a payment for sin, as a way to reconcile the wrong, to make humans right with him again through faith because of Jesus, so that ultimately Jesus would return and make all things right and restore all of creation and created order by punishing sin and evil forever and making the heavens and the earth new again God promises to recreate. So how do we reclaim the life God intended for us? Well, the first is that we ought to settle into the reality that we are a created being. That I can't create my own truth. As much as I can rearrange the stars or stop the waves of the ocean, I cannot decide what's best for me. But instead, I have to look at the authority of God. I have to choose to live under God's spirit and God's word. Both of these show up in Genesis chapter 1, by the way. Look at verse 2. That while the chaotic waters existed, as God was beginning to shape creation, the Spirit of God hovered over, calmly, peacefully in control of the chaos. And you can trust that when your life begins to become chaotic, that by faith you have a God whose Spirit is always over the chaos, calmly existing above the waters, ready to bring form to the formless 
ready to fill your emptiness. And then how does he do that? By his word. God speaks. God spoke creation into existence, right? We saw that ten times in chapter one. God said, but do you know what God's word is? The Bible will continue to talk about God's word throughout. In fact, John chapter one, the gospel writer John tells of Jesus that Jesus is the word of God from the beginning, who God then put into creation as a voice for him. Showing us what God is really like. God come to earth. Jesus is the word of God. And so as God speaks into creation and we submit ourselves under that, that means giving our lives in faith to Jesus. Choosing to be obedient to what he says. Following after him with our lives. That's what it looks like to settle into our reality of being a created being under the authority of God's spirit and God's word. God's word also is the scripture. God spoke to men who wrote down the words in this Bible. It's inspired. It's perfect. It's, it's not, there's no error here. There, there's, it's, all, it's all usable and profitable. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 in our New Testament tells us this, that all of our scripture is God-breathed. Just like God breathes life into humanity, God continues to breathe life into us through His Word. His Bible, the Bible speaks the Word of God. And so we can submit our lives to what God speaks and remember that our chaos is under His control as His Spirit lives in us. This is what God does. He brings form to the formless. He fills our emptiness. And any life without Him will continue to remain formless and empty. Now, next Sunday... How do we reclaim the good life that God intended? We're going to cover day seven. We're going to cover the implications that it has for enjoying life to the full. But for now, the only other way I want to bring out to reclaim the good life is that we, by faith, look forward to the creation he promised. The reason for our troubles is revealed in Genesis chapter 3. But Genesis chapter 1 is the clear truth that God is the only explanation for our lives and that God's design for our lives is the only way to experience full and unhindered joy, to know what true good is. Now, as we said, the rest of the Bible tells the story describing not only our problem, but God's solution. Despite our rebellion, God continues to bless, He pursues, and to lead us to that truly good life through the free gift of salvation made possible by Jesus Christ, which will be made complete when Jesus does return and conquer evil and make all things new again. It is only through Jesus Christ that once again God will create order out of chaos, fullness, out of emptiness, light out of darkness. The key difference between the first creation and the new creation, the first time God created the world, he created everything else and then created humans to populate it. Now, God is making a way for humans to be made into a new creation first. And then promises to work out the new heavens and new earth from there. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. 
and see the new has come. You can be made new through faith in Jesus Christ because God is the creator. Life can only be explained through him and life can ultimately only be enjoyed with him. And you can experience it through faith in Jesus Christ. The only way to live the life you were made for both here and now and for eternity. I'd love to lead you in a time of prayer where this truth can settle into our hearts and he give you a chance to respond to it. You're not hearing this kind of message outside of these walls very often. And so it may come as an offense to you to say that you are created and that God has a plan and a purpose for your life and that his way is best. I just want to humbly ask that you would consider the story that was told to the Israelites might be the story you need to hear today. And what would it look like for you to put faith in Jesus, to lay down your attempt to control your own life and submit to the life that's promised to be your ultimate good, which is through faith in Christ, living according to God's ways. If you need help figuring that out, we want to help you. This is a place where you can be welcomed to ask difficult questions, uh, to work through hard things, and to move toward God because he has moved toward you already in his son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, thank you for your son, Jesus, who makes sense of the world to us, that though we rebelled, you pursued us to the extent that you would give us your own son as a sacrifice for our sin. That if we would have faith in him, we could be restored in relationship to you the way that you intended it to be, both now and for eternity. My prayer today is, God, you would lead us all deeper into that reality that we are created beings, that life can only be explained by you and only be enjoyed with you. And God, as we walk out of these walls, we walk into a world that hates this message. May we be beacons of your love and goodness to a world that needs form, to a world that needs fullness, to a world that needs good, to a world that needs hope. May we be able to point them to you because of the truth of Genesis chapter 1. God, as people want to make decisions today, I trust you're working in their heart and lives and as they're either deepening their faith or choosing faith for the first time, would you give them courage to trust you and what you revealed to us in the scripture? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.